Well, we are closing out our summer series um, next week. We're nearing the end of it. It's been called Roots, and we've been taking an in-depth look at the first century church through the book of Acts. The book of Acts tells the story of the first 30 years. Now, we're not able to go through that whole 30-year history of the first century church. There's 28 chapters. We might next week get all the way through uh, chapter 10, which means there's a lot of Acts left to go. And what we hope to do is to encourage you and challenge you to do what the people in Acts did. If you continue to read through the book of Acts, there's a part where these people were starting to learn about Jesus, and it says they searched the scriptures daily to make sure what their teachers taught were true, was true. So just so you know, I don't I don't hit 100%. Sometimes I might say something that's just not right. So you need to go search the scriptures to make sure what I say, what other teachers say up here, is true. And that's what the church in the first century did. So what we're going to do starting next week after we close out this series, you're going to be able to get online and take part in an online Bible study that continues through the remaining chapters, 18 or so, of the book of Acts. And it's going to be interactive, you can ask questions, you can make comments, and it'll be the same type of teaching that you've heard up here. It won't be quite as long, but you'll be able to see what it meant in its original context and how you can connect the dots to other places in Scripture. And then, I think what's most important is see how what we read about 2,000 years ago applies to today. So I challenge everybody, when you see that go live next week, you'll be able to go to our website and and know how to log on there and and take part in that, that you would do what the people in the first century church did. You would search the scriptures daily to see if what you're being taught is true. So I hope everybody does it. Speaking of the scriptures, there's a copy of them coming down the aisles, going up the aisles. We give these out every week at LifePoint because we want everybody to have a Bible in their hand and we believe the words in there are true. You can open up in there. Or you can read along on the screen as I read. Just raise your hand. They'll give you a Bible. It's yours to keep. No need to give it back. If you need an extra one, take it. If you know somebody that needs one, take it as well. Take one of those Bibles and take it home with you. Well, so far in the book of Acts, we have read through and heard about a story where people began to really share the message about Jesus Christ coming to save the world. And how his followers began to go tell the Jewish world first that this Jesus Christ really was the Messiah. And as they continued to tell that story, the church grew. When we started the story, there was about 120 people who said, I believe in Jesus, I'm in, I want to be a part of this. And the last time the book of Acts mentions a count, it mentions just men. So if you add in the women and children, there's probably about 10,000 people that have confessed the name of Jesus, and said, I want to be a follower of Christ. And it seems like every time they met opposition, more people said, I want in on it. And they'd gotten to the point where, what you heard last week, they'd started to realize, you know, we got a lot of people here. And some people have this gift, and some people have that gift. And so let's appoint different people to take care of different things. That's the same thing we do today. You do not want me to strap on a guitar and start to sing. There'd be a lot less people in here in about 10 seconds. So they recognized quickly people have different gifts. And so they said, we need to appoint some leaders. So they appointed some leaders. And even though they were not really loved in the Jewish world, 
even though people were very intimidated by them, after they appointed those leaders, Rob, one of our teaching pastors who taught last week, mentioned this verse, one of the reasons they had to celebrate. Acts chapter 6, verse 7. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. I can just imagine the disciples as they teach in the Jewish synagogue, and these Jewish people who were really, really Jewish, and these priests finally started to listen, and something penetrated their hearts. And they started to say, you know, I, I want in on this. I, I believe this. I want to be a follower of Christ. And when Luke wrote this down, he noted this, that priests started to believe. That was a big deal. I can imagine the disciples going behind the curtains in the temple going, dude, give me five. I mean, they were probably high-fiving and excited because the leaders of the Jewish faith were starting to believe that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. But then things in the story today, as you'll see, start to take a turn for the worse. Things start to get a little darker. Things start to take a little different direction. When one of those leaders who was just recently appointed, his name was Stephen, a young man that was, was bold, that was full of excitement about this new found faith, he was appointed a leader and he began to talk. He was obviously a talker. So Stephen started to talk and he started to share with Jewish leaders in the synagogue about this person, Jesus Christ. And he did it by telling them about their history. And they got some people together and they got really upset with him. And they started to make up stories and say, look, this Stephen guy is making accusations against Moses and against God himself. And you pick up the story in Acts chapter 6, beginning at verse 12, where it says what these people did. It says, they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. That was the Jewish ruling council, like a court. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. These people were upset. They were so upset, they started to make things up that weren't even true. They just got people together and said, hey, you say this about him and I'll say that about him. And maybe they didn't even, they didn't even scheme to do that. It just naturally came out because they knew they had to shut this guy up. And the reason they were so upset, there's a key word in there. They were upset because he was threatening their customs. If you want to upset religious people, Start messing with their tradition. Start messing with their customs. That's true for today. Little old ladies can become some of the meanest, can say things you would never imagine a little old lady would say, can threaten to smack you in the face. I'm just talking from personal experience, okay? I mean, you start to threaten people's customs and traditions, man, they get upset. Anybody else experience that? They get really ticked off. That's no different than it was 2,000 years ago. Religious traditions and customs were being threatened. And so they bring him before the Jewish ruling council and they say, this guy is causing trouble. And they say, Stephen, what do you have to say for yourself? And what follows, which proves he's like chatty Stephen, he starts to talk. 
And for 50-some verses, which I'm not going to read through, he gives them a lesson about who Jesus Christ is and how Jesus is connected with everything in their past. And he starts, like any good teacher starts, with where the people are. He doesn't immediately start with, well, if just not long ago, this guy named Jesus, he starts way back. And he meets them right where they are, and he gives them a lesson on the history of their nation, on the history of Israel, about their ancestors. Now, they would have already known all of this, but what he's doing is taking what they know, and he's connecting it with what they don't know. And that's that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. So he tells them stories about Abraham, who was one of the fathers of Judaism, way, way back. And then he tells the story of Moses and how Moses led the people out of, out of Egypt. And he makes, up, makes some applications there. Then he talks about King David and King David's son Solomon, who built the, the temple, who finally got the Jewish nation in their temple. And then he says, oh, by the way, God doesn't dwell there. And that's what they thought. God dwelt in this temple, and they'd spend decades and generations trying to build it. And he's like, by the way, God doesn't dwell in places you build. No wonder they're upset with him. He's challenging everything about their ancestry, everything about their past. And he can probably tell, like I can tell when I can see your faces, if you're really listening. And he can tell if they're listening. Now everybody's listening. And he can tell, he can tell if they're mad at him. And so he can tell they're gritting their teeth. And he can tell they're stiffening up. They're getting ready to, to, to debate him. They're getting angry. He can see that. And he responds with this word in Acts 7, verse 51. He says, You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you're just like your father's. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. He's talking about Jesus. You who have received the law that was put into an effect through the angels, but have not obeyed it. Now, it's pretty obvious this guy, Stephen, is not concerned with being popular. What he's concerned with is speaking truth. And if nobody listened, I think Stephen would have still spoken truth. No matter what the consequences are, he's going to speak truth. So he's not really caring if anybody likes him. He's saying, you need to know the truth. And he calls them names. That's definitely not going to win your popularity. What if I just start calling you names on Sunday? You wouldn't like me very long. I mean, he, he looks at these people, these These people were held up in the community as religious leaders, holy men. And he points his finger, I'm sure, and he says, you stiff-necked people. The word stiff-necked, you know, the Greek, it comes out of the Greek, two Greek words that are put together. But here's what it means. Hardness of heart, stubborn, obstinate, stuck in your opinion and unwilling to listen. Stiff-necked. You're not willing to listen. You're stubborn. Now, what they would have heard was not just the word stiff-necked. You might think, well, that's kind of harsh to call a religious leader stiff-necked. What they would have heard, because they would have immediately related that to another place in Scripture where the word stiff-necked is used, and that's way back in the Old Testament when Moses was leading God's people out of Egypt, out of the slavery they were in in Egypt, they got out into the desert And they started murmuring, they started complaining, they started saying, Egypt was better, at least we had people feeding us every day, we're out here in the desert. And they they were not willing to listen to Moses saying, look, just wait, we're going to the promised land, just wait. And God got so upset with these people, 
he was willing to wipe him off the face of the earth. And just he was like, I'm doing a do-over, Moses. You and me, buddy. I mean, there's not going to be anybody else left. And Moses goes before God and says, God, don't do it. Let's think of what all the other nations will say about you. And God's like, I'm doing it. And this is a testimony that prayer works. Because Moses, in his communication with God, somehow God changes his mind and he doesn't wipe these people off the face of the earth. Prayer works. And God says, these are stiff-necked people. So when these Jewish leaders would have heard stiff-necked, they wouldn't just go, oh, ha, ha, you're calling a stiff-necked. They would have, oh, my goodness, they would have gotten really upset. I mean, call somebody stiff-necked. That relates to these rebellious people out in the desert. And now they're upset. And then he calls them the worst thing you could ever call a good Jew. He says, you have uncircumcised hearts and ears. That, if nothing else got them upset, that would get them upset. I mean, even the, even saying circumcision today, half the people in the room probably cringe a little bit. You know, that was a religious thing. has no religious significance today. Way back, it did have religious significance. So they're being told, you are uncircumcised. What that meant to them was, you're just a pagan. You're just vile sinners. Because to them, they looked at all the non-Jewish people as uncircumcised sinners. And now a follower of Christ looks at these people and says, you have uncircumcised hearts and ears. And immediately they're thinking the whole physical thing. I mean, I don't know why, I know how, but I don't know the why. Why, why are they thinking that? Well, you know, there's no doubt in my mind that circumcision came from God. No question about it. There's only a couple of options, options when it comes to, to that. Either somehow women got in power and they thought it up, you know, hey, let's, you know. I don't think that happened. Or, or God himself instituted it because there's no way men would have come up with this. There's no way that out in the desert 4,500 years ago, a group of men were out there with their camels around the campfire and said, hey, you know what we ought to do to prove we love God? I, 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 don't, I don't think that happened. So what he's saying to these guys that are sitting on this ruling council is, Your hearts and your ears are uncircumcised, meaning they are covered. You're not willing to listen. When it comes to your heart and your ears, you're just like the pagans. You're just like those people you say are godless. This would have definitely got them even more upset. At the core of those two statements, you're uncircumcised and you're stiff-necked, they would have heard, you think you're on God's side? but you're not. You think you're doing the right thing, but you're not. You continually reject what God wants you to do and you don't even see it. Even today, people who believe they're doing the right thing in God's name still do evil things because they believe what they're doing is right. Not many people say, I believe this is wrong, so I'm going to go do it. They believe it's right. They believe they're following God. But because their hearts and ears are uncircumcised and because their necks are stiff, they they continually do evil in God's name. See, these religious people who were questioning Stephen, they didn't think they were doing anything wrong. They believe they were on God's side saying, how could you speak against God like that? And they get upset 
And listen what happens in Acts chapter 7 when somebody messes with tradition. When they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. They all rushed him and dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul was there giving approval to his death. See, the religious leaders had had enough. They were finished. And so they said, you need to have your mouth shut forever. So they had him killed. So from this point on, no longer were followers of Christ just harassed for their beliefs. They were killed for them. From now on, it wasn't just like, you better be careful. Those people get mad. They might put you in jail. It was, you could die. When you tell somebody about Jesus now, the result could be your death. Because this is the first Christian martyr. The first person recorded in Scripture who died for their beliefs and their actions when they were trying to present the message of Christ. Martyrs were nothing new in the first century. There would have been other martyrs. They would have known this guy Saul that was helping out and making sure it all happened. He would have, they would have known that people were martyred for their beliefs. That was nothing new. There was, a, there was a revolt called the Maccabean Revolt that took place between when the Old Testament ended and the New Testament began. There was 400 years in the middle there. And, and the, the Maccabean Revolt was just the Jewish people uh, having this revolt against paganism. And they, they spoke against them. They tried to stamp out, stomp out paganism everywhere. And these Jewish people, these Maccabeans would be caught. And they would be crucified or, or somehow executed. And while these warriors, these Maccabean warriors were executed, they would curse the name of the executioner. They would curse the pagans and they would say these terrible things to them and about them as they were being martyred. But something was different about Stephen. Stephen didn't curse the names of the people who were stoning him, who were hitting him in the head with rocks. Instead, he says, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. So the first Christian martyr after Jesus doesn't die cursing the names of the people who killed him. He dies asking God to forgive them. And then the second part of Acts 1 says, On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church. See, they didn't put up with people challenging them to change. Challenge those guys to change, you die. And they didn't put up with it, and they killed Stephen. And then this guy Saul that it mentions giving approval to his death, took it upon himself to take down Christ's followers on his own. And he went from house to house and going, trying to pull people out, literally out into the streets and having them beaten and killed and thrown into jail. And he was giving approval to Stephen's death, like probably standing there like a cheerleader going, great right arm, buddy, great throw. And they were throwing these stones down into this pit probably where Stephen was until he died. And Saul was just clapping his hands and he left that episode and he said, I'm going to go make sure this thing gets stamped out because he's challenging our tradition and you don't do that. And Saul is out killing people and having him dragged into jail, splitting families apart. And in his heart, 
he believed he was doing the right thing. If you could meet this guy Saul or any of those people who threw the stones and you said, do you think that was the right thing to do? They would say, absolutely, it's the right thing to do. They would have believed it in their hearts. They would have felt it. They could have defended it. And they could have had a debate with you about it, that it was the right thing to do. And that episode from Scripture tells us one big thing. Just because I believe something doesn't make it true. See, they believed they were right. Thought they were doing the right thing. But believing it with all of their hearts did not make it right. So you can believe something strongly. You can have a strong opinion, but just because you believe it, that doesn't make it true. And you might say, yeah, but it's true for me. If you've ever said that, you have watched Oprah way too much. Way, read her books or whatever books she recommends way too much. Because this is what our culture says. Our culture says, search deep inside you. Go deep down inside and you will find truth. And that's where you'll find what your truth is and what your path needs to be. And the deeper you go, the more you'll find because all that is already pre-programmed somehow, somewhere to be inside you. So search deep inside and find it. If you do that, anybody that does that, what is the standard? If you listen to that and and you say, I'm just going to find my own truth, or you probably know people that do... What is the standard or who is the standard? You are. You're the standard. Then your heart becomes the standard for truth. So if you determine what's true and what's not, you're the standard. It's your, you are the standard. Your heart and what you believe. If we're the standard, if individuals are the standards for truth... What do you think when you read like Jeremiah 17 verse 9? There's a big problem with looking to your heart for truth. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? My heart's deceitful? Well, have you ever believed something only to find out you were wrong? Anybody? Everybody's like, hey, he got me today. That's me. I thought I was in love once and found out, you know, he was a jerk, but I was sure he was the right one. Ladies, come on now. And guys, I'm sure you've thought, she's, she's the one, she's perfect, it's great. And then you find out, no, it's not love at all. Maybe I ate something bad for lunch, I don't know, but I thought it, I thought it was love. So we have the ability or the propensity to believe something to be true to later find out that it's false. So if that happens to everybody, then how could a human be the standard for truth? I mean, that's not that's like logic 101. Come on. I mean, how could it be by looking deep into your heart that you would find truth? Because we've all believed things that we found out later. Whew. I mean, some of us, I mean, maybe you have a, a trouble carrying consistent thought for 30 minutes. Anybody do that? You know, since I've been talking, you've thought about lunch and bills and school and all that stuff. I have. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I have not. So if you have trouble with consistent thought over, I mean, how could we be the standard for truth? Because you know how many times you've looked in the mirror into your own eyes and said, idiot, what were you thinking? Where did that come from? 
But see, these religious leaders and this guy Saul, they looked into themselves. They found, they found the truth. And the truth was, we don't put up with people challenging our tradition. And we believe this is false teaching, so we're going to get rid of these people every possible way we can. Just because I believe something doesn't make it true. So how do I know if what I believe is true? How, how would I know? Here's, here's a place to start. I mean, it's more complex than one statement, but here's how you know if what you believe is true. It matters where you start. It all kind of balances on what, what was the starting point for what you believe. Now, this story goes on. So hold that thought. How do I know if what I believe is true? Let me tell you another story about another one of these leaders, not Stephen, but a guy, Philip. You'll see the name Philip a couple of times. This is a guy named Philip who, not the Philip who was with Jesus way back when you read Matthew through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is another Philip, one that was just appointed as a leader in the church with Stephen. I'm skipping a few things, going down to Acts chapter 8. Verse 4, because the church has been scattered, and it says, Those who have been scattered preached the word wherever they went. So even though they were scattered, even though a great persecution broke out on the church, they still did what was right. And it says, Philip went down to a city in Samaria and preached the word there. And it's interesting in Scripture, it's interesting in the, in the story of the book of Acts, as you'll see, as hopefully you go through the entire book, you'll see that every time... In the story where things looked bad, God took their faith and he made something really big happen. Every time something looked bad, every time they were persecuted, somehow numbers were added. Somehow people started to believe in Christ when you would think logically, well, they're being persecuted so people are going to leave them alone. So their goal was not to be free of persecution. Their goal was to be right in the face of persecution. And when they did that, God grew the church. And it was still working, even though Stephen had been killed. These leaders were still speaking words of truth no matter where they went. So if they can grow in the face of all that, that tells me something about my spiritual growth. My growth is not conditional on my circumstances. It can't be. If these people grew through this, then we can grow through anything. When it comes to growth, spiritual growth, when it comes to us challenging you to be in a life group or challenging you to get deeper into Scripture or challenging you from whatever, well, from whatever you hear from the stage, when it comes to spiritual growth, everybody's got a big butt. Right? So we're equal. When it comes to that kind of growth, we've all got a big butt because we say, I would grow, but um, things just are not good in my life right now. I'm going through a difficult time. I would grow, but, but you know, I, gosh, my kids, they're rebels. You just, I, would, I just don't have time. And, you know, they're in like four different activities. And I just don't have time. Or I would grow. I would grow, but you have not seen my wife You've not met my husband. Oh my gosh, I would grow, but all of these things are happening. So you need to think about, if you're taking notes, write down, what's my big butt? That'll help you remember it, right? Humor helps you remember stuff, right? Because we've all got one. 
Now, if these people 2,000 years ago could grow in the face of death and being dragged out to jail and still God's church grow, do you think the church could grow during a bad economy? Do you think the church could grow when, when things don't look good, when people are losing jobs and things don't look as rosy as they did maybe 10 years ago? Of course we could. Do you think the church could grow even though people have made mistakes in relationships, people have messed up and hurt each other, maybe you've said things you shouldn't or, or maybe relationships you're in are falling apart? Do you think you could still grow through that if people could grow in the face of of death when it would make all the sense in the world for them to go into their huts or whatever they lived in and pull the blinds and say, honey, we're staying inside. I'm glad we upgraded our cable because we're not going outside anymore. We're going to stay right here because we get killed for going out there. If they could grow in the face of death, I believe we could grow in the face of anything our culture could throw at us because they did. That's as bad as it gets. And I would bet that in our lifetime, we're not going to see it like that in our culture anyway. So we should be able to grow in spite of what's going on in our life. So Philip is out preaching. And God's Spirit tells him to do something. God's Spirit tells him, you need to go. There's a guy you need to go speak to. And this guy was from Ethiopia. And he was over the... He was uh, the treasurer for the queen. He took care of the queen of Ethiopia's money. And this Ethiopian guy had gone to Jerusalem to worship. And we pick up the story in Acts chapter 8, verse 28, when it says, On his way home, he was sitting in his chariot, the Ethiopian, reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, Go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. The eunuch was reading this passage of scripture. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before the shearer is silent, he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is this prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. If you keep reading the story, Philip's hanging out with this guy from Ethiopia, and they're going along, and the Ethiopian sees a pool of water or a stream or something that's a significant amount of water, and he says, hey, here's some water. Can I get baptized? And it says they stop the chariot, they get out, they go down in the water. Philip baptizes him. So obviously somewhere in this story, this guy from Ethiopia accepted the message of Christ. And just like you see us do here on about a monthly basis, we baptize people in water to follow what Jesus Christ asked us to do, to publicly proclaim. And he saw this water and he's like, why not? And at any time, and we've done that at any time today, tomorrow, it doesn't matter. It doesn't have to be at the baptism service. If you've accepted the message of Christ and you go, it's time for me to do that. Even if you're driving home and you go over the Falls Lake and you go, hey, I need to get baptized. Call me up. I will come right then and do it. That's what this guy did. He, he made a decision right there after he'd accepted Christ and he said, I need to go through this. So now back to the statement. How do I know if what I believe is true? It's all balanced somewhere you start. It all matters. It, it all hinges on where do I start? So you've heard the message of Christ presented by two different people today. One, 
Stephen, who presented it to the Jewish ruling council and got killed for it. Then the other, Philip, who presented it to this guy from Ethiopia, and that guy accepted. What was the difference? Why did the same message cause anger and death, and the other message cause someone to make a radical change in their life and accept the message of Christ? See, the religious leaders and the Ethiopian guy had different things going on. You can just read when, this, when Philip comes up to the Ethiopian, he says, what are you reading? He goes, well, how can I unless somebody explains it to me? That sounds like somebody that's open, doesn't it? That sounds like somebody that says, well, I want to understand this, but there's nobody to explain it to me. First of all, the guy from Ethiopia was doing something that's never recorded, the Sanhedrin did, or the Jewish rulers did. He was opening up Scripture and seeing what it had to say. So the difference was where they both started. The ruling council started with how they felt, what they believed. And then they hoped that God would line up with what they believed. And then their interpretation, they they focused way more on their interpretation of Scripture than they did Scripture itself. So their interpretation was their God. And they expect God to, to line up with their interpretation. That's why when their interpretation was challenged, the person was met with anger. Now, the guy from Ethiopia, he was different. He was willing to align his life with what God had to say. Do you see the difference? The religious people were saying, we feel a certain way and we believe a certain way, so we're going to line up our interpretation with how we feel and what we believe. The Ethiopian guy said, I'm going to open God's word and I'm going to align my life with his word and what he says. Those are two very different approaches. Because there are people today, maybe even in this room, you feel a certain way. So you go to scripture and try to justify how you feel. There are also people who start with God and start with his word and know that their life has to be radically transformed. Only one of those choices is the one that honors God. Only one of those choices will get you in line with God's will for your life. When I was preparing this message, I always write down, like, I always ask the question, if I was in the audience when this was being delivered, what, would I, what questions would I have? What would I want to know? And when I wrote down the religious leaders and I wrote down the guy from Ethiopia, I wrote down a question, and it was, who am I most like? You know. You already know which one of these two that you are most like. This story tells us that when I start with God, He brings radical change into my life. When I don't start with God, it's met with anger and suspicion and a life that's just not a life of peace. So how do I know if what I believe is true? Well, think back, where did I start? Did I start trying to validate one of my feelings or beliefs? Or did I start saying, God, no matter what, I'm going to obey what you say to do. When someone does that, it radically changes their life. You know the guy Saul I was talking about that was there giving approval to the death of Stephen? That guy Saul, this is the first time this guy Saul appears in Scripture. You might read other names Saul in the Old Testament. This is a different Saul. He also had another name. 
name was Paul. The, Paul, the Apostle Paul. And Luke, the writer of Acts, makes a very important decision here to call him one name when he was giving approval to Christians being killed and then another name after he finds Christ. You're going to hear all about that next week, about how one of the worst enemies of the Christian faith became one of the greatest defenders of it. Radical change. Because this guy, Paul, had an encounter with Jesus and became an apostle. He wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. He was the greatest church planner that's ever lived on the face of the earth. But he started with, he's introduced to us in Scripture with being one of those religious leaders filled with anger because their tradition, traditions were being challenged. Somewhere, Paul said, you know, I better align my life with God instead of trying to align God with my life. And he was radically changed forever. And Scripture doesn't say this, but wouldn't you think maybe the first seed that was planted was when Stephen was being stoned and he said, God, don't hold this sin against him. That, had, that would have to do something to you. And then later when Saul becomes Paul and he has this encounter with Jesus Christ, he goes in with the same people he tried to kill and he's radically changed because then he had made a decision to start with God and align his life with God. So for generations, when they would open up this book of Acts, or they would orally hear this story as it was handed down, what they would have known was, God can change anybody. God can, if He can take a person who hated Christians and tried to kill them and turn them into a person who followed Christ and would give His life for the message of Christ, He can change anybody. And that's still true today. No matter who you are, no matter what you believe, no matter what you've done or what you're doing right now, when your life gets aligned with Christ, He can radically change you forever. This story would have said to people then, and it should say to us now, everybody has an opportunity to align their life with God's will. Every person in this room, you have an opportunity to align your life with God's will. You may have lived your whole life searching for truth inside you and your whole life trying to go to Scripture to justify how you feel. Every person has the opportunity to open up Scripture and let God speak words of wisdom into your life and then you align yours with His will. There's a big difference. This week as you go about whatever your daily lives are, work, school, travel, whatever you're doing, May you seize every opportunity that you have to align your life with the will of God. Let's pray. God, thank you for today. And thank you for this uh, beautiful story in Scripture that shows us we can change. No matter who we are, no matter what we've done, we can change. And Father, we acknowledge that at times we start with our feelings and try to bring you into that. But God, may you convict us of that every time it happens. And may we align our lives with you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.